From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense. I'm John Wiener. Later in the show, new discoveries about America's atom spies. Julius and Ethel Rosenberg were arrested in 1950 and executed in June 1953, but we know that Julius did not give the secret of the A-bomb to the Russians. That was the work of a couple of other people, and the FBI knew it at the time. So, why did the FBI go after the Rosenbergs instead of the person they knew was the real spy? His name was Ted Hall. He was a brilliant young physicist who worked on the Manhattan Project. He gave the Russians detailed information about the plutonium bomb we dropped on Nagasaki. The FBI investigated him, but never charged him with a crime. Now, Dave Lindorf of The Nation has found the answer. But first, Beto can win. When he runs for governor of Texas in November, Steve Phillips will explain how. That's coming up in a minute. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Republican gerrymandering in red states makes it harder to elect Democrats to the House and the state legislatures, but statewide offices are still subject to majority rule. And that means Democrats can elect governors in places like Georgia, where Stacey Abrams is running, and also Texas, where Beto O'Rourke is running. Victories there have the potential to bring massive changes to American politics for decades to come. For comment, we turn to Steve Phillips. He wrote the New York Times best-selling book, Brown is the New White, How the Demographic Revolution Has Created a New American Majority. He's host of the Democracy in Color podcast, and he writes for the New York Times, the LA Times, and The Nation, where he's a regular contributor. Steve Phillips, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Well, we've talked in the past here about how Stacey Abrams built the movement in Georgia that elected two Democratic senators last year, Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff. Remind us what kind of work that took. Yeah, it's one of the uh, most important and least appreciated stories of national politics in that, you know, we were, you know, I've been on this journey with Stacey really since 2012 when she began. And so Stacey understands that the way to transform politics in the country is to organize and mobilize the large number of non-voting people of color. And that changes the composition of the electorate, and that makes it possible to actually win elections, which is really in direct contradiction to much of the conventional wisdom in democratic politics that that grouping is not gettable. And so we have to try to water down our politics to hopefully be able to swing um, some voters in the middle. And there's very little evidence that that works. And most importantly, what Stacey has shown that the mobilization method does work. And so she saw back as early as 20. 14, when she created New Georgia Project, that Georgians were losing elections by about 200,000 votes on average statewide. 
but there were 1.1 million non-voting people of color. And so she said, quite simply, I'm going to get these folks registered to vote. And so she began in 2014, steadily, methodically investing and organizing and building up the number of people of color who were registered and who voted. And then that was the cornerstone of her, uh, her gubernatorial campaign, went all over the state, every different county, suffered a lot of different criticism from the, the uh, conventional wisdom folks that she should have been saving her money to run TV ads at the end. But she's like, no, I'm going to create staffing and volunteers and offices all over the state. And so Stacey got more votes when she ran in 2018 than any Democrat who's ever run statewide in the state of Georgia ever. More than Jimmy Carter, more than Obama, more than anybody that came with a, you know, a whisker of winning just 54,000 votes. But that infrastructure stayed in place and continued to work. And so you had volunteers, organizations, staffing all over the state so that it was able to bring out another massive turnout in 2020 and defeat Trump by 11,000 votes and then can stay in place again for the runoff in terms of being able to turn out the votes for Warnock and Ossoff to, to win those seats and flip the entire United States Senate and make possible. So I talked to Stacey and I was like, so that uh, $10,000 we helped you raise in 2014, you've turned into $3 trillion for the American people because everything that's come out of the Senate and out of the Congress can be tied back to that. She says, I like to provide return on investment. (laughs) So this is is a decade-long project, not just to turn out the registered voters during the week before the election, but to change the whole composition of the electorate. And it's not not focused on one campaign, but on a long-term engagement. And you think Beto can win in Texas uh, next year when he'll be running for governor against the incumbent Greg Abbott. Greg Abbott won re-election in 2018 with 56% of the vote. Doesn't that mean Texas is a red state? The composition of who votes in Texas is that it's a red state. The composition of the population of Texas, it's nowhere near red. It's it's actually brown in terms of, and I didn't even fully realize this until the latest census data came out, but whites in Texas are just 39% of the state population. And Latinos are also 39%. African-Americans and Latinos in terms of eligible voters are the majority of people in Texas. Beto lost by 200,000 votes in 2018. There were 5 million non-voting people of color within within Texas. So the numbers are actually much more favorable in Texas than they were in Georgia in terms of what Stacey was doing. Stacey had a, you know, it was like, again, like 200,000 vote gap and a 1.1 million pool of potential voters. They've got a 200,000 plus gap in Texas, but a 5 million person pool. In, in, in Texas. And one of the things I point out in the article too is that it's even, it gets more diverse every day. And so there's a million people of color have turned 18 in Texas since Beto ran in 2018. And again, he lost by 200,000 votes. So the potential and the numbers and the math is really quite enormous, but people are really stuck on that this mindset that Texas is a conservative place and it's a red state and there's no point in contesting it. You've used the concept people of color, but aren't there significant differences between black and Latino voters in Texas? Isn't that one of the lessons of 2020 when the exit polls showed that 
90% of blacks in Texas voted Democratic, but only 60% of Latinos. Right. So I have a couple of things about that. One of the leading groups in Texas that's done the work that we saw them take place in Georgia is Texas Organizing Project. And one of their leading strategists, this woman, Crystal Zermeno, is a data genius, basically. And so she flagged in real time in 2020 that Trump was getting out more of his infrequent voters than the Democrats were doing. And so that's the fundamental piece. And then there was, a, I just ran these numbers for Hidalgo County on the border in uh, of Texas. And that was one of the places where Trump did surprisingly well. Yes. But what the incorrect analysis people have been drawing is that, well, all of these Latinos have switched from being Democratic to now actually supporting the Republicans. But all of these analysis, David Shore and other people who keep talking about popularism, you have to square the circle of Biden and the Democrats got more votes than they had previously gotten. Biden got 9,000 more votes in Hidalgo County than Clinton got. So how, if you're, if you're bleeding support and people deflecting, are you, is your vote total going up? But what happened is that Trump got 40,000 more votes than he had gotten in 2016. And so the non-voting sector was much bigger of the, uh, of the, of the conservative non-voters who actually came out. Biden got more votes in Texas than Trump got in Texas in 2016. And so it was a massive turnout function. And that core level of analysis is missing. And the other part about this, which is I was tweeted about this recently, we take the racism in the country so for granted and the racism among the Republicans so for granted. So even people say like, oh, well, you know, African-Americans are 80 percent, you know, Democrat, Republican, and Latinos are only 60 percent. But why are Latinos even 60 percent? Why are we so surprised? We're surprised because the assumption is that the Republicans are so racist that people of color should be even more against them. But that assumption, I think, has to be more lifted up and put front and center. And ironically, I actually think that's how you get more white votes is when you call out the racism of Republicans, demand that people take a stand, then that's how we're going to hit the highest numbers of white voters as well. Let's go back to Beto. We've said one of the most important things about Stacey Abrams' strategy was the importance of long-term, local, face-to-face, on-the-ground organizing. How does Beto compare with that? That's what's so in- hopeful and encouraging about his candidacy and his approach to politics. So Beto, lit- I think I said in the piece I wrote with the nation, that he literally has a roadmap about how to win because he <laughs> got in his car and drove to every single county, and there's 200-plus of them in Texas. And so he showed up everywhere. He found the people who were supportive and be able, began to, again, build an organizational infrastructure, attracting those volunteers, connecting them to his operation, working with them to be able to find other people in their areas to turn out, turn out the support. That's the formula. And that's his approach to politics is showing up everywhere, working in grassroots mobilization. He's done, he's partnered with Texas Organizing Project, uh, group I was talking about. He turned his own operation into Powered by the People, continuing to do voter registration, mobilized. My nephew has a little teeny tiny, he lives in Houston, Texas, old teeny tiny radio show. He's a financial analyst and he and his friend does current events pieces. And it was like a really a Facebook radio show or whatever. You know, it's like, like fine. And that's like, Beto called into that. He's like, I want to call into your show. It's like he showed up and shows up everywhere. And it's that approach that is so encouraging. 
in terms of what how he's actually going about his candidacy. And the other thing we're told uh, is that Texas, more than many places, uh, money is a key because it's such a huge state. Greg Abbott spent, they tell us, $85 million in 2018. He's already amassed a war chest of $55 million, and it's he's got another year to raise money. How's Beto doing on the money front? Right. And that's the other factor around Beto in particular, so uniquely situated to be able to take on that kind of an operation. So typically, particularly in these southern and southern southwestern uh, uh, states, the Republicans overwhelm the Democrats with this massive money advantage. They're the ones defending the status quo with which people make so much money. And so, yes, uh, Abbott, Abbott hit those numbers, a similar dynamic terms of what, you know, Stacey Abrams had, had, had faced, right? I mean, I still remember um, when the January 2018 numbers came out. I think Stacey had raised around like $3 million or something like that. And then I was like trying to show that she had some viability. And even then you had doubters and whatnot. Stacey's group, Fair Fight in 2020, raised $100 million. <laughs> and so she goes into her race with that kind of a funding base. And then Beto in 2018, he raised $80 million through his Senate race. So he has a national donor network that has proven to be able to go toe-to-toe with an Abbott. And then they raised a you know, significant number of many millions of dollars in their first 24 hours of their campaign. So he has that network, he has that potential. And so the combination of those factors, the underlying demographics, his approach to doing organizing at the local level and mobilizing people, and his capacity to generate the resources to fund all of that work is what makes that a very, very winnable race. Steve Phillips wrote about how Beto can win in Texas for The Nation. You can read him at thenation.com. Thank you, Steve. Thanks for having me. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership. We're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Now it's time to talk about atomic spying and the FBI. The Russians tested their first A-bomb in 1949. Julius and Ethel Rosenberg were arrested in 1950 and executed for conspiracy to commit espionage in June 1953. We know now that Julius was a spy, but we also know he did not give the secrets of the A-bomb to the Russians. That was the work of other people. And the FBI knew that. So why did the FBI go after the Rosenbergs instead of the person they knew was the real spy. His name was Ted Hall. He was a brilliant young physicist who worked on the Manhattan Project and gave key atomic secrets to the Russians. The FBI investigated him, but never charged him with a crime. He moved to England in 1962, where he became a distinguished scientist at Cambridge University and died in 1999. He had an older brother who was also a brilliant scientist who worked on rockets. His name was Ed Hall. The FBI was interested in him too, 
The question has always been why the FBI focused on Julius and Ethel Rosenberg and her brother, David Greenglass, rather than on the real spy, Ted Hall, and his brother, Ed. Now that story has been told in The Nation magazine by Dave Lindorf. He's an independent journalist who writes on the Cold War and on climate change and other issues. He spent six years as a correspondent in China, Hong Kong, and Taiwan for Business Week. And he was the winner of the 2019 Izzy Award for Outstanding Independent Journalism. Dave Lindorf, welcome back. Thanks for having me on. Well, first of all, tell us about young Ted Hall and how we got hired by the Manhattan Project. Well, Ted was such a brilliant guy that he actually went to college at 14. He went, his brother, who was 11 years older, uh, at when Ted was four, told his parents that uh, he was taking over his bro younger brother's education. And he did. He had him doing higher algebra, you know, as a grade schooler. He went to Townsend High School, which was this magnet school for geniuses. Ira Gershwin went there. Uh, Felix Frankfurter went there. I mean, there's a lot of very smart people went there. And at any rate, Ted got bored with uh, going to Queens College at 14. And his brother, who by then was in the army and stationed in England, said, well, uh, why don't you apply to Harvard? Ted did. And he got admitted as a junior physics major. When he applied, he was 16. And then uh, Oppenheimer wanted to get, uh, you know, they were rushing to get the bomb built and they needed more scientists. So he contacted Van Fleck, Professor Van Fleck, John Van Fleck at Harvard and said, do you have any like brilliant young guys that we can hire to, to join the effort and help us do this? And he said, well, yeah, we got a few. And there's this one guy that you really need to hire Ted Hall, who's, who's just absolutely brilliant. So they did. They hired four guys, two uh, graduate students and two undergrads, the youngest being Ted, who when he was actually interviewed, he was still 17. Uh, when he was offered the job, he was 18. He went in January uh, by train and went to Los Alamos and, and got there January 28th. And uh, Ted got put on a uh, project helping to refine the implosion device of the plutonium bomb. And how important was the information that Ted Hall uh, gave to the Soviets compared to what David Greenglass gave to Julius Rosenberg? Oh, vastly more important. There were two people who gave almost everything, a roadmap to the plutonium bomb. And one was Klaus Fuchs and the other was Ted. Klaus Fuchs was arrested by the British. He confessed and he was sentenced to how many years? Four, 14 years. He got Four. off after nine in a spy trade. Ted's material was not as voluminous as what uh, Klaus Fuchs gave. Klaus Fuchs gave a lot of the theoretical stuff, uh, but he didn't actually have the hands-on knowledge of the implosion core, which Ted was actually testing. So he knew exactly what worked. And he gave that information to the Soviets because the Soviets got two separate streams of information about this bizarre plutonium bomb idea. They had the confidence that they weren't getting tricked. And so they decided to go all out with the plutonium bomb and forget about trying to refine uranium and make a uranium bomb. That's a huge project, as the Iranians can tell you. Um, so they 
uh, focused everything on the plutonium bomb and they made a perfect copy of the Nagasaki bomb because they had the whole roadmap. And it was Ted that gave them that confidence because neither Ted nor Fuchs knew each other, uh, was a spy, and the Russians knew that. So the Russians had the confidence to build their bomb. So the FBI knew about Klaus Fuchs. How did the FBI learn that Ted Hall was a spy? Ted was actually the first spy to be identified by name in the Venona cable decryptions. And he was identified first as Malad, which meant young one, because his courier was his roommate at Harvard, named a guy named Seville Sachs, who was called Star, which is old one, because uh, he was a year older than Ted. Those two were identified. And then because they included Ted's name in one of the decrypts, uh, Hoover assigned a whole bunch of this was in 1950, early 1950, he assigned a whole bunch of offices around the country to find Ted, because Ted had already left Los Alamos by then, and long, long before he left in uh, the end of 45. So they finally located him at uh, University of Chicago, where he was working on a uh, PhD in biophysics. You know, that's when they put the full press on him. But what they very quickly also identified his older brother, Ed, naturally, who turned out to be a major in the Air Force working on a top secret missile engine project at Wright-Patterson Air Base. You know, you just imagine what Hoover thought in 1951. My God, I got two of them. And then it all fell apart. And, I, and that's what I found out why. I first learned about Ted Hall from a important book called Bombshell by Joseph right. Albright and Marcia Kunstel. That was published in <clears throat> 1997. They um, interviewed Ted Hall in England before he died. What did he tell them was his motivation for spying? He said he was hired and took the job because they explained that they needed to get this bomb because they were afraid the Germans were going to get it. This was in January of 1944. But very soon after that, towards summer, the Germans were in retreat in Russia, and it was clear that they were going to lose. You know, everybody knew by 19, mid-1944 that it was just a matter of time before Germany was, Germany was going to have to surrender or be defeated. So a lot of the scientists at Los Alamos, including major people like Niels Bohr and uh, Joseph Rotblatt and Leo Szilard and, and even uh, Oppenheimer, were thinking, you know, we really don't need this bomb to be used you know, Oppenheimer wanted to make it. Some of them wanted to stop. Rotblatt quit. A lot of them thought Russia should be in on this. Like Niels Bohr, he thought bring in the Russians. Ted thought bring in the Russians too. And the U.S. didn't want to do it. They were keeping them completely out. So Ted got more and more alarmed and thought, wow, the U.S. coming out of this war with a monopoly on the bomb is a disaster for the world. Uh, and he was right. I mean, clearly we know how the U.S. behaved after the war without having a monopoly. They killed millions in Vietnam, in Korea, and everywhere else. They would have done much worse if they had no opposition from the Russians having the bomb. But that was his motive, was like, get rid of the monopoly. Now we need to talk about the older brother, Ed Hall. You are the first investigative reporter to get hold of Ed Hall's FBI file. That's the focus of your a new story in the nation. Tell us about that FBI file 
how you got it and what the FBI did when they learned about the two brothers. Ted made a tape with his lawyer. Uh, he, the, the British uh, equivalent of William Kunstler is Ben Birnbaum, still alive at 91 or two. He was Ted's lawyer in after 95 when he came out. He had suggested that Ted make a tape explaining what he did and why. When he was asked, why do you think you never got arrested? He said, well, it's possible that they didn't want to, uh, you know, ruin my brother's work because the, the, he was like the key missile guy. He designed the Minuteman. And he also made the motors for the Atlas and the Titan. He was the head of the ICM, ICBM development program, Ed was. If the FBI had arrested Ted and McCarthy got a hold of that, it would have proven his theory about communists' infiltration of the military, right? Even though Ed was not a communist, I mean, obviously they would have thought, you know, the brother of our ICBM program is an atomic spy who gave the Russians the bomb. So anyway, I, you know, I saw that and I thought, God, I got to find out what, what happened with Ed, you know, because because they obviously the Air Force had to have been told, right? So I applied for the for the file. The FBI said we don't have a, a file on Ed Hall. Well, that's um, ridiculous. And I said that's ridiculous. You know, on the appeal, sent me 103 pages on Ed, and the first thing in the file was a letter from Hoover dated January 6, 1950 to General Joseph F. Carroll, director of the U.S. Air Force Office of Special Investigations. I looked up Joseph Carroll. It turned out he, was, he had gotten hired into that job from a position at the FBI as the main uh, person in Hoover's office, the main assistant. He, had, he was an Irish Catholic working class guy in Chicago who worked his way through Loyola Law School and joined the Air Force in, and the, the FBI in 1940. I actually called Joseph Carroll's son, who's a columnist. He's a priest named James Carroll. He said, uh, yeah, I'm an I'm a ordained priest. I'm in the Berrigan branch of the priesthood. <laughs> and, he, and he said, I said, would your father have stood up to Hoover? And he said, my father revered Hoover, but uh, he would have not hesitated to stiff arm him if he tried to interfere with the prerogatives of the Air Force. So, you know, that seems to be it. So, so the first letter, Hoover says, I'm writing to tell you that we're investigating an atomic spy named Ted Hall, and I want to inform you that his older brother, Ed, is a major in the Air Force working at a top secret project on rocket engines at Wright-Patterson Air Base. We would like to investigate him at earliest opportunity. So they knew as of January 6, 1950, in the Air Force, that there was this connection. So did he get permission to investigate Ed? Well, not really quickly. I have a letter from Hoover, a second letter, March 27th, where he writes, you said that you're going to conduct your own investigation into whether Ed Hall might be uh, inimical to, his position might be inimical to the interests of the United States. And he said, we, our investigation of Ted Hall has advanced to the point where it's urgently important for us to interview Ed. And 
So he did get permission, but not urgently. He didn't get to have Cincinnati FBI offices investigate a question ad until June 12th. That's three months later than the March letter. And shortly after that, Ed was promoted to Lieutenant Colonel and put in, uh, made a co-director of the engine project. And then in 1954, he was made director of the whole ICBM development project. So, you know, obviously the Air Force believed that Ed was not a spy. And obviously they stopped the Ted Hall investigation because Ted was called in by the FBI. Uh, Ted got three hours of, of very intense grilling and threats. He denied everything and they got up and walked out. And they said, we want to see you again on Monday. He came in on Monday. He said, I don't have anything more to say to you. And he got up and left again. And that was the last time he was questioned, Monday, the 19th of March. On February of 1950, both Savvy Sachs and Ed, uh, Ted rather, were taken off of the special file for you know immediate arrest in a crisis and monitoring, phone taps, mail covers, all that stuff stopped in February of 1952. So obviously Hoover was told, you can't arrest this guy. You can't do anything public about him. And it never leaked out that he was a spy. So we have two amazing brothers. We have the teenage spy who was a prodigy in physics and helped create the plutonium bomb that was dropped on Nagasaki and really did give those secrets to the Russians. And we have his older brother who was not a spy, was a brilliant rocket scientist who developed the missiles that could deliver nuclear warheads in an attack yep. on the Soviet Union. We've wondered for a long time, how come the FBI focused on the Rosenbergs? And you have found the answer. The Air Force needed Ed, the older brother, so they couldn't arrest the younger brother, Ted, the real spy. This was really a kind of a turf battle, as you describe it, between the Air Force and the FBI. Meanwhile, yeah. the FBI already had a confession from David Greenglass saying that he had given the secret of the atom bomb to his brother-in-law, Julius Rosenberg. The Rosenbergs were active communists. So the FBI could put on a big show trial and J. Edgar Hoover could claim that he caught the people who stole the secret of the A-bomb, even though they knew the real guilty party was a free man because they had lost this turf battle with the Air Force. Ed Hall, never a spy, in fact, was honored for his work for the Air Force on nuclear missiles. Tell us, tell us about that. Yeah, when he, when in 1999, long after he'd retired, he was named uh, to an honorary position at, in the uh, the Air Force uh, Aerospace Museum in Colorado as a pioneer in uh, you know missile and uh, and satellite technology. America's nuclear arsenal is back in the news, you know, this month. Remind us uh, what's going on right now. Yeah, every president has to review the U.S. nuclear posture uh, and develop a, a plan for how we would use nuclear weapons. And, and so right now, Biden's about to issue it, maybe by February. And um, 700 so far physicists and Nobelists, Nobel laureates have written a letter to him saying that he needs to act to move forward on denuclearization. And they've proposed that he should cut the U.S. Uh, active warheads to a thousand from the current 1500 are, unilaterally to get things going. 
And they're saying that he should say that uh, the U.S. will change to a policy of no first use of a nuclear weapon in any crisis. And, and this is what Ted want, you know, wanted. So, I mean, this is really right up his alley. He, he hoped that this would happen. Dave Lindorf's report is titled Brothers Against the Bureau. It appears in the new issue of The Nation magazine. Dave, thanks for this fascinating work and thanks for talking with us today. Well, thank you for having me on. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Our audio engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is the nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com. You can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts, at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.